Thank you for that beautiful music. I was projected into heaven, weren't you? I look forward to heaven and to, to hearing more of that. I could listen to that all day. I was just soaking it in. Thank you so much. Well, here we are. And it's a beautiful day. And we've got some evangelistic meetings coming up in this church in a few weeks, right? And it has to do with prophecy. And then we're going to have a conference on Daniel 11 in this church. So we're going to have a lot going on. I think we need to get ready for it, right? And um, we need to know why we're Seventh-day Adventists. Have you ever thought about that recently? Do we sort of take it for granted? Yes, I'm an Adventist. I'm vegetarian. I I, I do this. I do that. I go to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And here we are. See? Ah, but did you really stop to think about the options? Now, some of us have just been born into the church. We're like fourth generation, and we don't know any different. But if you really think about it, why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? And it helps sometimes to go back to the beginning, which according to no less an authority than Julie Andrews is a good place to start. Let's begin at the beginning, a very good place to start, right? I don't sing very well, and if I do, you'll all leave. But um, if there's a fire alarm, then I'll just sing and you'll get out quick. But in any case, going back to the beginning of the Adventist movement is a good place to find out why we're Seventh-day Adventists. Where did all of this start? It started with our scripture reading, Daniel 8, 14, right? Under 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And William Miller thought that that meant the end of the earth, uh, that the destruction of the earth was, was going to be by fire, that the sanctuary was the earth, and there was a great Millerite movement, but out of that very challenging experience then grew the Adventist church when they realized that the time was right, but the event they didn't have quite right. So we're going to look at that today, and we're going to look at that timing, and we're going to look at the significance of that event and find out why we're Seventh-day Adventists. Now, how many of you here could, um, as we are just sitting here at this point, you feel confident that you could explain to somebody from Daniel 8 and 9, with just your Bible, Daniel 8 and 9, you could explain to them why we believe that there's an end-time judgment that begins at 1844. How many of you could do that? Some of you could. Just a few. Very good. Okay, at the end I'm going to ask the same question, and hopefully many more hands are going to go um, up. Why is that important? Because that shows, even though it was 175 years ago, it shows that the big prophetic time clock has reached its fulfillment, and now Jesus can come any time. He's just waiting at any time he can come. Before that, there was always looking to that event. But now, we're living in the very end of time. And that's extremely important for us to know. And to know why we're Seventh-day Adventists. This, this idea is not just one among other ideas. It's not just one of 28 fundamental beliefs. It's a very crucial one because it's the only one that Seventh-day Adventists have contributed to Christian theology. See, I have friends who are Jews, and they keep Sabbath. I have evangelical friends, and they believe in the second coming of Christ. Our uh, Jehovah's Witnesses friends believe in conditional immortality of the soul. See? We could go down the list, and the only one that's really truly unique to us is this one. And it takes the understanding of the sanctuary in Leviticus and shows that this is being fulfilled. Leviticus is prophecy, and it's being fulfilled now in our time, and we are in the end time. 
See, Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book called The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey said his greatest struggle of faith was the ascension of Christ. Why the ascension of Christ? He wrote a book on the problem of pain. Wouldn't you think that would be a greatest struggle of faith? No, the ascension of Christ. Because, Jesus, why have you left us here all alone? You've gone, are you on vacation? Are you on sabbatical? Are you on research leave? What are you doing, Jesus? What is, where is he? What's he doing now? And, of course, the book of Hebrews says he's in heaven. Everyone thinks he's in heaven, but what's he doing? And through understanding this message that Adventists have, we can know what he's doing now. And it really is good when one that you love, you know what they're doing. When my wife is digging in archaeology in Jordan, it's nice. I like to know what she's up to and what, what things are happening to her and so on. You want to know what he is doing. We can keep in touch. And this explanation in the Bible teaches us that. Now, it's nothing that we make up. It's public domain. It's been there in the Bible all along. It's just that Adventists have been guided by the Spirit in connecting the dots. And we understand the connections that are there. So that's what we're going to look at today. But let's pray first, shall we? Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your goodness to us and for making this word plain. We pray that your Spirit will be here. And may this be clear to all of us today, these steps leading to 1844. And may we understand the significance of that for the time in which we live. May we understand why we have some special message from you, which is the end time message that we can share with our fellow, fellow neighbors, our friends, and all those around us. And we can have greater confidence in sharing because we know that it comes directly from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in a previous life, okay, right now I teach at the seminary, the Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University. And I'm a professor of Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern languages. That's what I do now. But in a previous life, I used to be a pianist. And uh, don't ask me to play now because I'm really out of touch. I've been writing books instead of playing piano. But when I was in college, I was a piano performance major and a theology major, both. And one day, I was practicing the piano in my mother's studio, because she was a piano teacher, and it was in our home, and I lived at home, and I was practicing the piano. I got a phone call, and someone on the other end of the line said, Roy, you're scheduled to speak at a chapel service in Dauphiny Chapel. This was for about 800 students, men and women, and the service is beginning now. Oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in deep trouble. I had completely forgotten. I didn't have an appointment book. I didn't keep record on my computer, which, which uh, prompts me. And I had completely forgotten I was supposed to speak for the chapel service. And it was starting now. I said, keep them singing a little bit longer, and I'll get there as fast as I can. So I went, and I real quick pulled on something in a total panic. And then I ran and jumped in my Saab car. It was an old 67 Saab. Uh, from Sweden, and I turned the key, and the car wouldn't start. And uh, try as I might, that car would not start. And so uh, I abandoned the car, and I ran down a fairly short trail from the house to PUC. Some of you may know that trail. And then I ran all the way, it's up a hill, up to Dauphiny Chapel, which was at the back end of the girls' dorm, and I got there just in time to see 
everyone leaving. They had abandoned me. They had given up that I was ever going to show up, and they were leaving. And among those that I saw leaving was the older sister of a girl that I was interested in. That was before I met Connie. And um, I was utterly humiliated. Do you think I'd go and mingle with them? Oh, hi. Forget it. I turned my tail, and I went straight back home. I have never been so humiliated. I forgot I missed my appointment. Anyone here ever missed an appointment? Aha. I feel better. Okay. But there's someone who doesn't miss his appointments. Praise the Lord. God doesn't miss his appointments, huh? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, there's a very important appointment that is relevant to us here today. Turn to, in your Bible, and you're going to need your Bible today. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. And there look at verse 6. Revelation 14 verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, do you get the impression that this is an important message? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is an end-time message just before Jesus comes. It's a warning message to all the earth. And during this time, when the hour of his judgment has arrived, God's people have something to do. Look down at the third angel's message in verse 12. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who do, one, keep the commandments of God, and two, keep their faith in Jesus. Two things for God's people to do end time judgment just before Jesus comes. All right. That's very good. That's very good. Wonderful. Inspiring. And that's our, that's our mission. That's our call. The question is, when is that? When can it be said the hour of his judgment has come? The book of Revelation doesn't tell us. But there's another book in the Bible that does. Turn back to Daniel. Back to Daniel chapter 7. And look at verse 10. Now, verse 9 tells about thrones are placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God the Father. And there's all this majesty, and it describes him, and it describes the angels there, millions and millions of angels to serve him. And then it says at the end of verse 10 in Daniel 7, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And this is just before Jesus comes, because after that it goes on to describe how Jesus then comes and is presented to the Ancient of Days, but then he's given the kingdom, and then he comes um, after that. So this is an end-time judgment. Does that sound familiar from the book of Revelation? The hour of his judgment has come. But when is that? It doesn't tell us when that is. Now, this, this time of judgment is judgment for one thing, That is, on the uh, powers that are opposed to God. The little horn power is opposed to God. So you have all of this problem, these human uh, empires, and then this one, this little horn power, is challenging God, and it's persecuting the saints, thinking to change times and the law. And the solution is the judgment. Now, we go into chapter 8, and again, we find some powers, earthly empires. We find a little horn power. 
Again, challenging God, doing these kinds of things. And then what is the solution? The solution is in verse 14, which was our scripture reading. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be, the Hebrew says justified. You can say cleansed, which means legally cleansed, which means vindicated. Okay? That means to be shown to be right. And the sanctuary represents God, his character, authority, reputation. Just like the White House represents the character, authority, reputation of the sitting president. Okay? So the sanctuary represents God and his character. And so for 2,300, then the sanctuary shall be restored, and the restoration of the sanctuary is really through the same event as in chapter 7. That is an end-time judgment. So, the answer to the question of, when is it true that the hour of his judgment has come? It's after 2,300 evenings and mornings. Is that clear? And that's something we need to know because we live in that end time, just before Jesus comes. And it tells us something about what we're going to need to do. In fact, God not only keeps his appointments, he has appointments with us. That end time judgment is one. The ancient Day of Atonement for the Israelites was an appointment they had with him. Now, when God has an appointment with you, you want to know what the time is so you can be there and keep it, right? If he just has the appointment... Look, if my doctor makes an appointment but doesn't tell me what the appointment is, I'm not going to show up, right? Okay, but he does tell. In Leviticus chapter 23, God tells the Israelites when, exactly when, is their Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was Israel's judgment day. A few verses earlier, in verses 29 and 30, those who do not practice self-denial, that is, humbling oneself by fasting and other things, or keeping Sabbath, not working on that day, those two things, then those people would be cut off or destroyed. So it's a judgment for Israel. But you want to know when it begins because you want to know when you need to be doing these things. Verse 32, look at it. Leviticus 23 Verse 32, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. That's one thing. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. That's the Sabbath. Okay, two things they were supposed to do. Sabbath and self-denial, that is, afflicting yourself through fasting. Just like God's end-time people, two things we need to do. Commandments of God, faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, verse 12. Do you see the correspondence between the two? So the ancient end time, the ancient day of atonement was a prophecy of the end time judgment, and God told his people exactly when their day of atonement began so that they could keep the appointment with him. And they would not work during that time, and so that they could be fasting and so on during that time. It's exact. At sundown on the ninth day of the month, which is at the beginning of the 10th day of the month when you move from the 9th day to the 10th day. It's sundown. You see the sun go down, and that's it. That's pretty precise. God told his people exactly when. So does God tell us when the end time judgment is, the way he told the Israelites where, when their judgment was? Yes. And the answer, again, is in Daniel 8, verse 14. But how do we know what this is? 2,300 Evenings, mornings. Daniel 8 doesn't tell the answer to that question 
In fact, at the end of Daniel 8, look, verse 27, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, and so on. He was so upset. Why wouldn't he realize, ah, that's the answer to the question. It's all going to be over after 2,300 days. Great, now I have the answer. What's the problem? Two questions. What do days mean? How long is the period? And secondly, when does it begin? If you don't know the answer to those two questions, you don't know when the period ends. And therefore, you don't know when that sanctuary is cleansed and the judgment begins. Are you following me? So what we need to do is look at seven steps to 1844 that are going to answer that question. Now, this is on your handout. I'm going to be showing a PowerPoint, but it's on your handout. And I want you to turn to the second page of that handout. Turn it over to the second page, and you'll see at the bottom it says summary. See that summary? That's all. Those are the seven points we're going to be looking at. Step one. The 2,300 days are much longer than literal days. Two, Daniel 9 explains Daniel 8. Three, the 70 weeks begin in 457 B.C. Four, the 70 weeks are weeks of years. Five, the 490 years are the first segment of the 2,300 days. Six, the 2,300 days represent 2,300 years beginning in 457 B.C., and seven, the 2,300 years end in A.D. 1844. That is a summary in seven steps. That's where we are headed, okay? Now, Adventists have tended to make it complicated. We have started with Daniel 2, then we go to Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and by the time we're there with all of this, and it takes a long time to get there, then, you know, we say to our new uh, members, uh, or... That's, that's it. That's, that's how you get to 1844. Can they repeat that? No. Okay, I believe it. <laughs> it's so complicated, but I'll never be able to repeat that, but I believe it. I think that's not good enough. I think we need to understand for ourselves. And I th- think we need to explain it more simply. Clifford Goldstein, in his book, 1844 Made Simple, does it in a little over 90 pages. And that definitely is simpler. In this little book called Who's Afraid of the Judgment?, I do it in six pages. That's a lot simpler. Um, Ten steps in here, and then I explain answers to objections. But what what we're going to do here is, I've got it summarized for you on two pages and seven steps right there. Okay? This is boiling it down to make it as simple as it gets. There is no simpler presentation than this that I've ever heard of. Okay? Why is it important to make it simple but yet solid? logically from one step to the other, so that we can remember it, and we can feel confident about it if we know it, and we can share it with other people. And then we'll talk about the implications and why that's important. So let's go to our seven steps, and we're going to start with the first one and just unpack that one. So first of all, the 2,300 days are longer than literal days. If evenings, mornings, that is days, in Daniel 8, 14, were literal days then 2,300 days would be about six and one-third literal years. Does that make sense? All right. So 2,300. Divide that on your calculator by 365 or by 360, which is the biblical uh, number of days in a year, and you come out with about six and a third literal years. Is that what it is? Is that the angel 
uh, or, or Daniel in, in his vision receiving this message from God that, um, and in fact it was one angel talking to another there in verse 13 and 14, is he receiving the message, the sanctuary is going to be cleansed in six and one-third literal years. Is that it? Well, we're going to have to go on. In fact, the 2,300 days covers the entire period of Daniel's vision. Now, if you go to Daniel 8, and you see when the vision begins, look at this, verse 1. Take your Bible and just skim through with me. Daniel 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision, that's the Hebrew word chazon, appeared to me. A vision. Now, what is the vision? Well, there's a ram, and then there's a he-goat, and the he-goat rams the ram and um, knocks it out. And then the, um, the he-goat, it loses its great horn. The great horn's broken. Instead of it, four conspicuous horns. And then you have a little horn that challenges the prince of the host, which is, who's the prince of the host in the Bible? Jesus. And then the question is, how long is all of this? And the answer is, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, if the vision covers all of this, what does the vision mean? Well, we don't have to guess. Look at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And then the next verse, the goat is the king of Greece. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. And then it explains that there are four kingdoms that come. The latter end of their kingdom, another one comes that is persecuting and so on and so forth. Now look, if the ram represents the kings of Media and Persia, there were quite a few of those kings of Media and Persia that reigned, individual kings reigns, a lot longer than six and one-third literal years. So it doesn't make sense that this whole vision could cover six and a third literal years? doesn't fit, does it? doesn't fit the context, doesn't work. In fact, the vision covers many centuries. goes through Media Persia, Greece, Rome, two phases of Rome, really, and then the sanctuary is cleansed. So the answer is, too much history to be literal days. Does that make sense? Now, did I impose anything on the text? Did I say, I'm a historicist, and therefore I have to read it this way? No. We just started reading the text and let the text unfold itself. That's all. That's what, all we're doing here. Now, let's go to The next step number two, Daniel 9 explains Daniel 8. Babylon was conquered by Medo-Persia. Look at Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by a descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, why is this significant? Why does it matter? Look at Daniel's reaction. He's studying, in the following verses, he's studying Jeremiah. He's looking at the prophecy of Jeremiah that the captivity would come to an end after 70 years of Babylonian domination. Babylonian domination. And now where Babylon is gone and we're into the next empire. See? And Daniel is still in Babylon. His people are still there. The temple is still not built. And the time is up. We should be going home. And so why isn't Daniel overjoyed? The 70 70 years are coming to an end. We're going home. Shouldn't he be very happy? But look at his reaction. His reaction is, verse 3, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, pleas for mercy with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel, are you a chronic melancholy? What's the matter with you? 
And furthermore, in that previous chapter, chapter 8, didn't Daniel get told that the end was coming soon? Shouldn't he be overjoyed if it was six and a third literal years? If I tell you that there's going to be peace in the Middle East in six and one-third years, is that good news or bad news? Well, it's incredible news. Amazing news. See? So if Daniel believed that it was literal years, then he would be overjoyed. But he wasn't. Clearly, Daniel understood that it was much longer. All right. What upsets Daniel? What upsets Daniel is, even though the 70 years of captivity were ending, the Daniel 8 vision predicted a whole series of empires with 2,300 days, and then the sanctuaries cleansed. Daniel takes that to be a long period of time, not literal days. And therefore, what is Daniel thinking? Why is he upset? Because the people, my people, the Jewish people, are so evil that God has called off his plan to restore us after 70 years. And now it's going to take 2,300 days, periods that means a lot longer, until this restoration. And so therefore we have to wait all this time. God has put that plan for the end of the captivity in the 70 years. He has put that in the shredder. Now we have an alternative plan that's been revealed to me, and Daniel is really, really upset. He can hardly do his work. But, but Daniel understood that it refers to much longer. Gabriel, however, comes to explain the mar'eh, the vision. Now, just let that sink in for a moment. God could have told any one of his lesser angels to come along and reveal this to Daniel. But instead, God sends Gabriel, the covering cherub, the one who is the number one top created being in the entire universe, the one who replaced Lucifer. God honors Daniel so much, God sends his very, very top ambassador to Daniel to explain it. That's incredible, and it shows how important the message is. And so while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel, then here comes Gabriel. And he says, from the time you started to plead for mercy, um, the word went out, and I've come to tell you. I'd like some physicist to explain to me how Gabriel got there that fast. Uh, This is many times the, the speed of light. This is an incredible time warp, but that's another topic. I have come to tell it to you, verse 23, for you are greatly loved. How would you like to hear that from God? You are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. What vision? There's no vision in Daniel 9. What vision are we talking about? must be the vision of Daniel 8. It's the previous chapter. That's the vision, and Gabriel has come to explain it. Now, what is it that Daniel doesn't know about that vision? He doesn't know what the time period is exactly, and he doesn't know when it begins. Daniel is concerned about the near future. What's going to happen to my people? The city of Jerusalem and the temple. The people, the city, and the temple. That's what he's concerned about in his prayer. And now Gabriel comes to explain what's going to happen to his people. All right, so there is no vision, so it explains Daniel 8. That's very important. Many interpreters of this stop with the end of Daniel 8, and they don't get the connection. But the connection is so clear. Without that connection, you cannot understand the behavior of Daniel. So step number three. The 70 weeks begin in 457. Look at 
verse 24 there of Daniel 9. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and so on. And then we go down a little further, and we find that there's going to be seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then there's going to be a final week later on in verse uh, 27. All right? One week. So we have seven weeks plus 62 weeks plus one week equals 70 weeks. That is the whole prophecy. The 70 weeks would begin when a command to restore Jerusalem would go into effect. That's verse 25. Verse 25 is uh, from the going forth of the word or the decree to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There will be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. All right. Now, this restoration of Jerusalem it's speaking about, we think of restoring a house or restoring a city. Suppose we decided to restore Berrien Springs to what it looked like in 1880. Okay, I'm not suggesting anything, but restore. Okay, What does it mean to restore? We think of physically restore, don't we? We think of building walls and so on. That is not what the Hebrew expression means. If you look up the Hebrew word for restore, restore a city, how do you restore a city in Hebrew? And the answer is, you restore the city to its original owner. See? If the city is being taken over by someone, you turn it back to who it belonged to before, and that is restoring a city. So the question is, when did that happen? And the answer is, well, we go to the book of Ezra, and we see the history of that period. And we find that there were three decrees. Cyrus made a decree for the people to go back. He talked about the temple. Nothing about the city. Darius, same thing. Second decree. The third decree of Artaxerxes I, king of Persia. And it says in Ezra 7, this was in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So we, now we have a date. Interestingly, for this time period now, dates are exact. Because during the time of Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, there was an eclipse. And now, by astronomical dating, we can compare with Babylonian records. And now we know to the day when kings began to reign. We know that Nebuchadnezzar started to reign April 2604. We know to the day. So this is very precise chronology here. Okay? So the seventh year of Artaxerxes, and he makes a decree in Ezra, and the decree not only has concern for the people and the temple, but also the city. And he tells Ezra... You need to govern now, govern Jerusalem by the law of your God, appoint judges, and if anyone doesn't comply, then they're going to be punished. So the king is turning Jerusalem over to the control of the Jewish people for the first time since the Babylonian captivity. That is the restoration of Jerusalem. Now we have a date for that because the seventh year of the reign of that king, Artaxerxes, was 458 B.C., to 457. It overlaps our years, just the way you have a fiscal year starts in July 1, overlaps to the next July 1, okay, or June 30. So there you have 458 to 457. And by the time the decree went forth, Ezra got there, was able to tell the people, and it went into effect. That was 457. So we have a date now for the beginning of the 70 weeks of years. This happened in 457. They put into effect the king's command to restore civil control of Jerusalem to the Jewish people. And then we're ready for step four. Okay? We've got the beginning, 457.
The 70 weeks are weeks of years. Now, if you look at um, the verses there, 25 and 26, you've got seven weeks, and you've got 62 weeks, and at the end of that 62 weeks, that is which follows the seven. So, put the two together, that's 69 weeks. 69 weeks after that time, the Messiah would come. Now, what does the word Messiah mean? Anybody know? Messiah means? Anointed one. When the anointed one comes, who do you think that could be? Jesus, the Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew. And, and he's going to come at the end of 69 weeks. Now, there's an awful lot of history that's going on in here to the extent that this could not be literal weeks of days. The Hebrew word for week refers either to a unit, it refers to a unit of seven, whether weeks of years or weeks of days. It could be either one. So the question is, how do we decide between them? And the answer is context. Many things are decided in the Bible by context. How do we know? The context indicates years. There's too much history for days. This is going to be 490 years that is 70, 70 times 7 years for the whole 70 weeks. Okay? 70 weeks times 7 years is 490. And this is going to be less than that because it's the 69. It's going to be 483 uh, years. Now, if you doubt that this makes sense to translate this weeks of years here, then I would invite you to go to the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament by Kehler and Baumgartner, who are not Adventists, and that's one of the industry standard dictionaries or lexicons of Hebrew. And if you look up that word week, Shavua, they put the Daniel 9 passages under the meaning week of years. They're not Adventists, but they recognize that it couldn't possibly be week of days because there's too much going on there. Okay? So this is very helpful. 483 years from 457 B.C. is A.D. 27. So we expect the Messiah to come in 27 A.D. Now, if you take your calculator and you take 483 minus 457, you're not going to get 27 because your calculator has a zero in it. But there was no zero year. It went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Okay? So you have to at a year. What happened in 27 AD? Jesus became the Messiah when he was anointed, because that means anointed one, right? So when he's anointed, he becomes the Messiah. When was he anointed? According to the Bible, in these passages, in Luke 3 and Acts, uh, he was anointed by the Spirit when he was baptized. And it gives a date for that. It's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar wasn't just some ordinary Joe Blow. He was Tiberius Caesar. He was the successor of Augustus Caesar. His dates, you can look up. They're exact dates of his reign. You can look it up in Wikipedia uh, in your iPhone. It's very easy to find. And the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, if you realize that, that Augustus died in August, A.D. 14, and then until the next new year would have been counted by Jews, even though it's an incomplete year, it's counted as year one, and you go 15th year is 27 to 28 A.D. Daniel predicts the Messiah is going to come in 27 A.D., 
When is Jesus baptized as the Messiah, anointed by the Holy Spirit? In 27 AD. Does God keep his appointments? Jesus kept his appointments. And I love what it says in Galatians 4.4. It says, in the fullness of time. Jesus was born of a woman. He came exactly when he was predicted. This is one of the most stunning evidences that Jesus is the Messiah. Because Daniel is writing half a millennium earlier. And he's predicting the exact year when Jesus would come. There are other predictions about Jesus in the Old Testament, like Psalm 22, like Isaiah 53, but this one predicts the exact time. It's, it's amazing. And a lot of people, including Daniel scholars, have tried to interpret Daniel in other ways to get around this, but you really can't if you're just reading the Bible. Jesus came exactly when he said he would. The 490 years now, step five, are the first segment of the 2300 days. According to Daniel 9.24, look at 9.24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. That is the Jewish people. Your translation says decreed or determined, right? Something like that. But the Hebrew word is hatak, which only shows up in this verse, this verse alone in the whole Bible. And so what does it mean if we don't have other contexts to compare it with? Well, in rabbinic literature, Jewish rabbinic literature, this word has a very simple basic meaning, and it means to cut off. To cut something off from a longer segment. You take a string or a rope and you cut it off, that's hatak. Okay? And there's an extended meaning, and that is to determine or decree the way we say cut a deal, right? And you can, cutting has, has the idea of delineating a decision. Now, in this particular context, the meaning of that word is perfect because it fits both. The 70 weeks are cut off from what? Well, what's this vision, what's this explanation explaining? It's explaining the vision of Daniel 8. The 70 weeks are cut off from a longer time period, which is the 2300 days. Aha. And also, that cutting off is determining now for the Jewish people. It's a time special for them, so both meanings apply. Then we find that the 70 weeks prophecy gives details of the near future, the first part of the 2300 days. Daniel is concerned about the near future, what's going to happen to his people now. That helps to answer the question, are the 70 weeks cut off from the beginning or from the end of the 2300 days? And the answer is, they're cut off from the beginning because it's explaining that part of the history. Furthermore, then we find that Daniel 9.27 says, On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. After it says that an anointed one shall be cut off, that's Jesus' death in verse 26, then you have the destruction of the city, and abominations are decreed. This is after Jesus dies. This is during the rest of the 2300 days. So the 70 weeks of years are cut off from the first part of the 2300. Okay. Now... That's it. That's just what I said. So I'm going to move on. Now, step six, we're getting close. And from here, it's, we're over the hill. It's just downhill all the way. It's, it's easy from here. The 2,300 days are 2,300 years beginning in 457. If the first segment of the 2,300 days is 490 years, there's a problem if those are literal days, isn't there? If those are literal six and a third days, 
years for the 2300 days. There's a problem, isn't there? How can you take, uh, how can you say that there are 490 years as the first segment of six and a third years? How can you take something bigger out of something that's smaller? How can a chihuahua give birth to a Great Dane? Okay? I'm not going to expound on that dogmatic theology, but just, uh, that's a... Okay, just checking to see if you're awake there. All right. It doesn't work, does it? So therefore we know that the 2300 cannot be days. They must be years. All right. And then for days as years, we have evidence in prophecies elsewhere. See, we've established it from the context of Daniel 8 alone. But we find that there are other places where it happens. We're not just reading in from those passages to Daniel 8. We established it in Daniel 8 itself. But in other places, and then in Judges 17.10 and 1 Samuel in Hebrew, uh, the word yom, that means day, in plural can mean year. So in Judges 17.10, someone is giving someone a salary for the year, for the whole year, and he says, this is your salary for yamim, days. Okay? So the word in Hebrew can mean either one, just like the word week can. And we found by the context, it has to mean years in the context of the 2300 days. Now the starting point of the 2300 years, we know, has to be the starting point of the 490, because the 490 is cut off the 2300, right? Do we have a starting point for the 490? Yes, 457 B.C., when the decree goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Artaxerxes I. We have the beginning point for the 70 weeks, which is the same as the beginning point for the 2300. Now, it's easy. Step 7. We're already into step 7. 2300 years end in 1844 A.D., now all we have to do is take 2300 minus 457, and your calculator is going to say 1843. Why? Because your calculator has a zero, and there was no zero year. And that's why William Miller and his associates were disappointed in 1843. They thought that the prophecy was about Jesus coming to earth. It's not about, it's about him coming to his Father in heaven for the judgment, but they thought he was coming to earth in 1843. And then they discovered, wait a minute, no zero year, therefore it's got to be 1844. In 1844, according to the context in Daniel, the sanctuary would begin to be cleansed or justified through a judgment in heaven. This shows when the hour of his judgment has come in Revelation 14. This must be God's temple in heaven because 1844 is long after the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. God's end-time judgment is happening now. That wasn't too difficult, was it? How many of you now think that Jesus is coming soon? All right. How many of you now think that you could... Explain that, or at least you understand, and you could just go through that from Scripture, maybe with the handout to help guide you, and you could walk through those steps. How many of you think you could do that? Now, see, that's a whole lot better. That's very good. Okay, and here's the summary. Uh, Number one, 2,300 are much longer than literal days. Step two, Daniel 9 explains, Daniel 8. Three, 70 weeks begin in 457. And step four, the 70 weeks are weeks of years. Step five, the 490 years are the first segment of the 2300. Step 6, the 2300 represent 2300 years, beginning in 457, and the 2300 end in 1844. And that is it. Now, I want to ask you this question now. This is 175 years ago. 
Now, we can celebrate the pioneers. That was the beginning, way back then. But you know what? Pioneers are looking forward. They're not looking back. You notice that about pioneers? Where were they looking? Forward. What should we be looking forward to? Remember the pioneers in this country? Pikes Peak or bust. Not looking back to Boston, right? Pikes Peak. I'm headed that way. We can look forward to the next great salvation event, which is the end of the judgment. And furthermore, we realize that there's all kinds of stuff that's going to happen before that. The book of Daniel tells us in chapter 12 of Daniel that there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was. You can mix the First World War, the Second World War, the conquests of Genghis Khan and 9-11 and all the rest, all into one. They won't come close to the time of trouble. Thank God it's going to be short. See? We're going to go through a very difficult time. And things are already getting more difficult. All these mass shootings, right? All the bad stuff and people are saying, whoa. And the environment, people are saying, when's it all going to end? And they're afraid. This stuff is happening to us. Where is it going? Where is it? What's it going to lead to? Who's in charge here? And they're afraid. And we as Adventists know there's a time of trouble and it's going to come out good in the end if we're with Jesus. He's going to take us through and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. This is the hope that we need to share with our neighbors. Now, let me illustrate it this way. Um, Suppose you are a woman. Okay, now for at least 50% of us, that's not a hypothetical. Okay, all right. And suppose you're a woman, and, and one, day, one morning, uh, you start to feel a little queasy. And um, you really don't feel like eating your breakfast. So you skip breakfast that day, and later on you sort of recover. But then um, the next day, uh, it's, it's a bit worse. And in the morning, every morning, you have this nausea. And some kind of food you can't fix, and you don't even want to fix food. So your husband fixes it for you, and you don't even want to look at that. And uh, this goes on for a month or two, and, and you, then you discover your, your belly's starting to swell a bit. Whoa, what's going on here? And then f- a few months later, you know, by the t- you're, you're really, wow, all this growth here. What's going on here? And um, as I said to my wife when she was pregnant, I said, honey, it's not going to take a stork to deliver you. It's going to take a crane. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, <sighs> she forgave me for that. And, and, then, and then you start to feel, what was that? You start to feel this awful pain, and it gets worse and worse, terrible pains, and you don't know what's happening to you. It's terrible. And you don't know where it's going to lead. There's nobody to support you. You don't have a clue what's happening. And, and well, look, there was a, a woman in Walla Walla, Washington, when we were living there, we heard in the paper, she went into the hospital with stomach pains and came out with a baby. Yeah, Okay. Now, look, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Okay? Isn't that much better if somebody, your mother, the doctor, someone, tells you what's happening, what's going to happen to you, what the progress is, what the outcome is going to be, and then when you go through that awful pain, like we're going to go through the time of trouble, you know there's going to be a good outcome on the other side if everything's go well. Isn't that a wonderful hope that we have? Isn't that something we can share? with the people that change the oil in our car, with the people that, you know, uh, clean our teeth, with all the people that we, we mingle with, talk to them about just the news. Start off with the news. What's, stuff going, what's troubling you? And then, what do you think is going to happen? And then, get into this. And Jesus is going to take us through, and we can brag about Jesus, see? We have that blueprint. We know what's happening. And that is an incredible message. Now, did you hear about the bridegroom? The bridegroom, and he was standing at the altar... 
And he was standing at the altar and waiting for the bride to come down the aisle. There's no, no greater sight than to see your, your bride come down the aisle. It's, it's awesome. Those who haven't experienced marriage, whoa. It's, I, I'll never forget. And he's, he's waiting there for the bride to come through the altar. And she sort of doesn't. Okay? He's waiting. And she doesn't come through that, that door. And he waits all afternoon. He waits in the evening. He stays there all night. He waits the next day. He waits a week. He waits a month. He waits two months. He waits a year. He waits 175 years. Who am I talking about? Any time, say, from 1844 on, Jesus is waiting for his bride to come down the aisle. And guess who the bride is? It's us. Now, we can, some people could stop and say, oh, the Lord delays his coming. Okay? But maybe it's us he's waiting for. If we say the Lord delays his coming, we're not going to come down the aisle. We're going to, oh, it doesn't matter. This wedding may be off. No, but he's waiting for us to grasp hold of the end time message and to share it with others, to finish the work by his power, not our power, to let this gospel of the kingdom go to all the earth so that the end can come. So this gospel needs to go viral. You know what I'm talking about, go viral through all the media that we have available for the end to come. And I, I so much look forward to that, to that end. I want Jesus to come soon. And let's sing about it. Our final closing hymn is Lift Up the Trumpet, number 213, Lift Up the Trumpet.